You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. By the time you build a coal-fired power plant, it takes you five years. And in that time frame, you're going to see wind and solar 30%, 40% cheaper than it is today. Offshore wind will change the national picture for many, many countries. For August 17th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Offshore wind has been booming in Europe for several decades now, as we have discussed as far back as episodes 17 and 34. Denmark has long been the established world leader in offshore wind, having developed the world's first major offshore wind farms starting 20 years ago. It now gets around a fifth of its power from offshore wind, and it plans to triple its offshore wind capacity, as you'll hear in the news segment of this episode. But the U.S. has been a laggard in offshore wind development, having just commissioned its first offshore wind farm, the 30-megawatt Block Island wind farm off the coast of Rhode Island, in late 2016. All that is about to change, however, as you'll hear in today's episode. Offshore wind capacity in the U.S. is expected to hit the 1 gigawatt mark in just two years, and grow by a factor of 40 in the next two decades, under a new target set by the U.S. government. Offshore wind is finally hitting its stride and is poised to provide a significant share of the nation's power. But the promise of offshore wind is about more than just power generation. A robust offshore wind sector can reduce the need for transmission capacity over land. Offshore wind can step up when other clean generation resources are more expensive than we expect them to be, and without facing the same hurdles as onshore transmission or land-based wind and solar farms. It also enjoys higher capacity factors than onshore wind and solar, and has different generation profiles than onshore, making it a good candidate for balancing the variability of land-based solar and wind. In the long run, it might even be a good way to produce hydrogen to help us decarbonize the hard-to-decarbonize sectors. And it will create jobs, lots and lots of good jobs, in everything from making turbine components, to rebuilding port facilities, to building specialized ships designed to install these absolutely massive turbines in deep water. It's a truly exciting story and one that I've wanted to tell for a long time on this show, but we had to wait a few years for the industry to reach the point where it was finally getting into serious commercial projects. So I'm very pleased to finally be able to tell it today. And our guide in today's episode is a real expert on the subject. Patrick Gilman is a program manager in DOE's Wind Energy Technologies office, where for the past 14 years he has led a wide range of analysis, research, and development, and deployment activities to help advance wind energy's role in the U.S. energy sector. He has advised DOE leadership on wind energy technology, deployment, and policy issues under four presidential administrations, and he has a long institutional memory of how offshore wind finally became commercial in the U.S., as well as an excellent vantage point from which to see its future. So it's a real privilege to have him on the show. Then in the news segment, we'll have a look at five recent stories from all over the world that are all about offshore wind. And now our conversation with Patrick Gilman, recorded June 23rd, 2022. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Patrick, to the Energy Transition Show. 
Thank you so much, Chris. It's great to be with you. As a program manager in DOE's Wind Energy Technologies Office, and as someone who's been doing analysis, research, and development and deployment on wind for the DOE for 14 years, you have an excellent perspective on where the U.S. wind market has been and where it's going. So today, I think I'd like to focus on offshore wind specifically, because it seems that that sector is really finally seeing some real investment in the U.S. and really globally as well. So let's just start with some basics. How large is the offshore wind industry globally? So at the end of 2021, cumulative capacity around the world for offshore wind is just over 50 gigawatts for more than 250 operating projects. Now that majority of that is in Europe, but Asia, particularly China, is catching up very quickly. In 2021, the offshore wind industry installed record 17 gigawatts of capacity And mostly that was in China, which commissioned almost 14 gigawatts, which is more capacity in a single year than the entire world has installed in any previous year. The United Kingdom sort of next up with just under two gigawatts, followed by Vietnam, which is a new entrant to the market with a little more than 600 megawatts, Denmark, Netherlands, and Taiwan. And we see this growth likely to continue. The global generating capacity proposed in the project pipeline for all offshore wind projects reached close to 370 gigawatts in 2021, and that's up 20%. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. Up 20% since the end of 2020. (laughs) And then another interesting thing is that we're starting to see floating offshore wind. So in shallow waters below about 60 meters, you need to put offshore wind turbines on foundations that are driven into the seafloor. But beyond that depth in waters deeper than 60 meters, you need to put turbines on floating foundations. And that's been sort of a promising frontier for a long time, but we're really starting to see some movement there as well. And now we have more than 60 gigawatts of projects floating offshore wind in the pipeline, which is more than double what we saw at the end of 2020. And floating offshore wind capacity that's been installed is now about 120 or 130 megawatts. Wow. And then finally, I think it's important that A bunch of different countries have announced big targets for offshore wind development. The EU is targeting 300 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2050 as part of its net zero economy plans. The UK has announced a target of 40 gigawatts deployed by 2030. And then, of course, last March, we, the United States announced a target of 30 gigawatts by 2030. Okay, so when we're talking about these pipelines, I'm certainly familiar that in, for example, the wind and solar industry, a lot of the pipeline doesn't actually get built. Those are just sort of projects that have been announced or that may be in the early stages of development. Is that the same case here? Yeah, I think that's broadly correct with respect to the pipeline. I think the difference is that when we're tracking the pipeline, at least in the United States, we're not counting capacity as having entered until the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which is the agency that's part of the Department of the Interior that regulates offshore wind deployment on the U.S. outer continental shelf, until they make the space available for offshore wind leasing. And so what that represents is a commitment by the government to make that available. And so we tend to see projects enter the pipeline and then progress all the way through. Obviously, there's some that drop out, but the majority that we see are progressing. Okay, so once it gets to the BOEM approval, it's pretty well along. That's right. Yeah, okay. So what's the size of the U.S. offshore wind market? So in 2021, U.S. offshore wind project development pipelines reached a total of just over 40 gigawatts. And to give you a sense of how firm that pipeline is, more than 17 gigawatts of those projects have now been awarded power purchase agreements or other off-take agreements. Okay. In 2021, 
Boehm auctioned off five new wind energy areas in the New York Bights, so off the coast of New York and New Jersey, and that accounted for most of the growth in the pipeline. Those wind energy areas have the potential to host nearly 10 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity in, in the auction for those leases in February of this year for a subset of those areas reap more than $4 billion in winning bids, which is, I think, a great reflection of interest in the market. Wow, that's awesome. All right, so the U.S. project pipeline is in the neighborhood of, what, one-tenth of the global pipeline? Am I getting the numbers right here? That's about right. Okay, so in terms of installed capacity today, though, the U.S. is really still just getting started, isn't it? That's right. We have seven turbines installed in (laughs) offshore. You can count them on two hands. Okay. (laughs) Yes, you can. Totaling 42 megawatts, including 30 megawatt Block Island wind farm off the coast of Rhode Island and the 12 megawatt Coastal Virginia offshore wind project off of Virginia Beach. Okay. But we expect that there are a number of projects that are sort of in the late stages of development. Two projects that the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management has issued final approvals for. So those could be operational in the next couple of years. So we expect to see, for example, the 130 megawatt South Fork project, which is being built off of the coast of Rhode Island and Massachusetts, but will deliver power into Long Island. That project, and then the 800 megawatt Vineyard Wind 1 project off of Massachusetts, we expect those to be operational in 2024, which could bring the total of operating capacity by the end of 2024, up to around a gigawatt. All right. Well, we're finally getting some real size then. So although the U.S. offshore wind industry is still in its early stages of development, it's expected to really grow very substantially in the coming years based on the figures you just mentioned on the pipeline. So going from that nearly one gigawatt to the roughly 40 gigawatts in the offshore wind energy project development and operational pipeline you mentioned a moment ago, that's about a 40x increase. That's a massive increase coming our way. So what is the DOE's outlook on offshore wind beyond that? So we have current state policy commitments of about 39 gigawatts by 2040. So those are states that have committed legally or as a policy to procure that much power by about 2040. And we expect that some coastal states will get close to 50% or more of their electricity coming from offshore wind in the coming decades. As I mentioned, in March of last year, the Department of Energy, the Department of the Interior, and the Department of Commerce announced a national goal to deploy 30 gigawatts of offshore wind in U.S. waters by 2030. And reaching that goal would generate enough electricity to power over 10 million American homes and really establish the U.S. as a major participant in the global offshore wind industry. And further, uh, scenario analysis we've done around the 30 gigawatt by 2030 goal suggests that it could set the country on a path towards deploying 100 gigawatts or more by 2050. And in that level of deployment could supply on the order of 5% of the nation's electricity. Wow, 5%. All right, that's a significant chunk. In fact, that's more or less one third of the remaining coal generation capacity in the US. So that's getting into real size. But I also wonder about the various ways of estimating the potential. I mean, there's the full technical potential, which measures the total technically recoverable resource. And then there's the feasible or the economic potential. This is kind of a thing is very familiar to those of us who have studied the oil and gas sector, for example, because there's the the resource in place, and then there's how much of it you think you could technically recover if price were no object, and then how much could you actually recover with certain assumptions about future costs and technology changes and so on. And there's all different ways of estimating it, and they actually assign probabilities. So like P50 right. is 50% probability, P95, 95% probability, and so on. So there's a fair bit of uncertainty about 
what the potential is with these kinds of resources. And with offshore wind, for example, the Net Zero America paper published last year modeled several different scenarios for offshore wind generation. And after screening out a lot of locations using a fairly coarse screening method, in my personal opinion, their very highest scenario for offshore wind was 386 gigawatts of installed capacity. But NREL estimates that the technical potential for the U.S. offshore wind is actually more like 2,000 gigawatts of capacity, or 7,200 terawatt hours per year of generation, which is a lot. So there's clearly some difference uh, in these estimations, which no doubt boils down to a lot of different assumptions about what the technical potential versus the economic or the practical potential is, among other things. So what's the right way to think about the full potential for offshore wind in the U.S.? Yeah, so first let's talk about what we mean when we say technical potential, going back to that NREL resource assessment. So technical resource potential, is, as you said, is the total resource that's accessible given a certain set of technical constraints in the technology, like turbine size, water depth, and how many turbines you could fit within a given space without them really starting to interfere with one another from a power generation perspective. I can't speak to the Princeton NZA study's technical potential numbers, but as you say, the NREL resource assessment back from 2016, which by the way, we're planning to update by the end of this year, given how much has changed over the past five years. So stay tuned. Oh, interesting. Okay. That resource assessment found about 2000 gigawatts, two terawatts, as you said, of technical potential. How much of that technical potential will ultimately develop depends on a lot of different things, like how state and federal policy towards offshore wind deployment evolves. As I mentioned before, state targets are really the primary drivers for deployment at the moment. Second, how ambitious our policies around decarbonization become more generally. Obviously, the more we decarbonize our electricity sector, the more important offshore wind could be how cost competitive we can get offshore wind to be relative to other sources of new generation, particularly clean generation, how much transmission we can build to move those resources like wind and solar from the interior country to coastal load centers, how much capacity Bureau of Ocean Energy Management makes available for leasing. And then finally, how much affected communities see benefits from offshore wind and are interested in its continued development. And depending on with the scenario analysis that we do when we sort of tweak all of those different factors, we can see deployment as low as 40 gigawatts, essentially just filling up the state mandates that have been put in place to date, all the way up to 200 gigawatts or more in scenarios where we see less transmission build out, lower costs for offshore wind, things like that. So your high-end estimate is 200 gigawatts, which is like half of what was in the NZA paper. So that's interesting. Yeah. And I think part of that is I think the scenario that you're speaking about in the NZA paper is, is one in which they're really limiting or maybe excluding entirely the non-renewable sources of clean generation. And we haven't done an exercise like that to look at what offshore winds potential could be if you eliminate the possibility for nuclear or for CCS or for some of these other sort of non-wind and solar technologies to take a big chunk of power generation in a deep decarbonization scenario. So that could be it. Oh, I see. So when you come up with this 200 gigawatt sort of high-end estimate, you're deriving that from an assessment of what the total portfolio will be and then just figuring out like how much of a wedge is offshore wind. You're not just building up sort of a bottom-up assessment of the potential for offshore wind irrespective of the rest of the energy system. That's right. When we're getting to those kinds of estimates like that 200 gigawatt number, what we're doing is we're we're running capacity expansion models to look at 
how the power sector evolves given a certain set of technology and cost and siting assumptions. All right. So beyond the energy they would provide, what are the other benefits the U.S. can get from further development in offshore wind? And I think fundamentally, it's really that offshore wind represents the opportunity to build a new industry in the United States. Hmm. If we achieve the 30 gigawatt target by 2030, that means more than $12 billion a year in offshore wind project investments. And then those investments in turn can result in tens of thousands of jobs in a variety of occupations, which a piece of analysis we did in support of the 30 gigawatt target showed would be paying at or above median wages across the country and then induce tens of thousands more jobs in communities where those offshore wind workers would live and work. And those project investments in turn also spur investments in supply chain development, port revitalization, vessel construction, wind power plant operations, and other like infrastructure and facilities. In particular, I think you see coastal states looking at offshore wind as a significant opportunity for the revitalization of working waterfronts. We're already seeing this in places like New Bedford, Massachusetts, where they've stood up a significant marshalling port for offshore wind. In Salem County, New Jersey, where the state of New Jersey just announced a major investment to build out the New Jersey offshore wind port. And then in the South Brooklyn Marine Terminal in New York, where major investments in all these places are being made to stand up the facilities that'll be needed to install these large offshore wind projects that are coming. Because you have to have a place to stage all this equipment. That's right. You can't just magically make the supply chain have the parts show up the instant they're ready to be installed. Like You have to have actually a big place where you can stack all this stuff and then bring it out on ships to be installed. Yep. It takes a lot of lay down room to put down a hundred meter long blade. Yeah. And it takes a lot of room for the factory for that blade. And so these facilities need to be built up. They're not just available. I think another benefit from offshore wind, particularly for coastal states looking at it right now, is that it has the potential to be sited in places where land is limited. Mm-hmm. It's located, most of the U.S. population lives within a pretty short distance of the coastline. And so offshore wind can provide renewable electricity very close to coastal load centers where there's a lack of sites for on-land renewable energy development. So if you're thinking about Massachusetts, which has one of the most ambitious goals for offshore wind deployment, given the population density and land constraints in a state like that, there's just not a lot of room for gigawatt scale wind or solar deployment on land. Mm -hmm. In the longer term, I think that there's also a significant potential role for offshore wind to play in maritime and a carbon economy-wide, sorry, decarbonization through production of hydrogen for zero carbon transportation fuels or industrial processes. And I think finally, uh, for us at DOE in particular, we see that there's a window which is closing for U.S. leadership in floating offshore wind, which is far more nascent than fixed bottom offshore wind in which we will need in order to access the majority of the U.S. offshore wind resource and all of the resource effectively in the Pacific in places like California, Oregon, and Hawaii. And if we are able to seize that leadership, I think we can see U.S. companies selling technology and providing services to the floating offshore wind market all over the world. Hmm. And I guess maybe it probably goes without saying that another major advantage, not only do you not have to have the land, With offshore wind, you have the possibility, at least with the floating turbines, of putting them so far offshore that nobody has to look at them, which really reduces that NIMBY resistance. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you mentioned there's a window that's closing for U.S. leadership here. Why do you say it's closing? Well, I think what we see is that countries around the world are really ramping up their ambitions around floating offshore wind. And 
That ambition is increasing quickly, but the supply chain hasn't really developed around the world yet. There hasn't been sort of a convergence on a particular technology type or sort of a small set of floating technology types. If you look at all of the different concepts that people are looking at for floating offshore wind foundations, they're a pretty wide variety still. And we know that the way that floating offshore wind substructures, moorings, we know that the way that they're done now in sort of the smaller pre-commercial projects that we've seen are not the way that it's likely to be done when we get up to 1,000 megawatt plus projects. And so there's an opportunity for us now through research and development, through engagement and partnerships with the industry, through policy development with the states to figure out, okay, how we get ahead or catch up with it, get to a point where, you know, we have the technology here in the United States to do that sort of serial manufacturing of offshore wind substructures to get through the challenges associated with floating offshore wind because, you know, the biggest floating offshore wind market in the world might be California, but we need to get going on that now because, as I said, the ambition of countries around the world is really increasing. Scotland, for instance, has a plan now to lease 15 gigawatts of floating offshore wind in the next several years. So would it be fair to say that the risk or the reason why this window of opportunity would be closing would be not unlike what happened in the solar industry where China basically ramped up its manufacturing capacity for solar modules to such a level that they were able to outcompete everyone else, both in terms of capacity to do manufacturing, but also in terms of the lowest price. Yeah, I think that there's some inherent advantages to localization of manufacturing for for offshore wind and floating offshore wind, just given how big these structures are, like transportation costs are going to be really significant. Yeah. But I think that is to a certain extent true. I mean, we see some of the floating offshore wind technology providers around the world that have done the best, a company called Principal Power, for example, are started as U.S. companies, but they're not deploying in the U.S. market and they're not developing technology right now for the U.S. market. And we really want to change that. Why not? Like, who else are they doing it for now? Scotland? Yeah, they're doing it in places like Scotland and Portugal, where mm. where the ambition, at least to date, has been higher. Right. So not only could the window close in the sense of just being outcompeted by the rest of the world, but it could close in the sense that we'd be toward the back of the line in terms of who gets the next delivery. Right. Yeah. Okay. So one issue that came up in our conversation with Liza Reed in episode 161 is that most modelers of the potential for wind and solar in the U.S. assume that we'll follow this so-called macro grid strategy, where we build significant long-distance transmission capacity to ship out wind from the Midwest and solar from the Southwest to the coastal cities where most of the demand is. But what if that's not how our transition proceeds? I mean, this is one of the questions that kind of keeps me up at night, right? Like if we fully develop our offshore wind potential, how much of a solution could it really be? And what would be the implications of that for our presumed need for long distance transmission and helping us to achieve our national decarbonization goals? 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to a new report from the Global Wind Energy Council, 21 gigawatts of new offshore wind capacity were connected to the grid globally in 2021, tripling the capacity installed in 2020. Global offshore wind capacity is now 56 gigawatts, of which about one-tenth of one percent is located in American waters. China alone added 17 gigawatts of offshore wind power in 2021, or 80% of the global total, as developers raced to complete new projects before China's feed-in tariff expired on January 1st of this year. The UK came in second last year with 2.3 gigawatts of new offshore wind capacity installed, of which 57 megawatts was floating. Vietnam came in third with 800 megawatts. In the U.S., manufacturing capacity for offshore wind is ramping up, with at least nine major component facilities in development to make foundations, towers, cables, and blades. Virginia-based utility Dominion Energy is building a $500 million ship in Texas specifically to install offshore wind. And the California Energy Commission recently approved a $10.5 million grant to renovate the Port of Humboldt Bay to support offshore wind activities near there. Floating wind capacity is now at more than 121 megawatts globally, indicating that it is graduating from a demonstration stage technology to a pre-commercial one. Offshore wind growth is expected to explode over the next decade, despite supply chain challenges. A separate offshore wind market outlook from Bloomberg NEF projects that offshore wind capacity will reach 504 gigawatts by 2035, tenfold the current capacity. Item 2. In May, Massachusetts utilities filed long-term plans with the Department of Public Utilities, the state's utility regulator, to procure power from two offshore wind projects, Commonwealth Wind being developed by Avon Grid Renewables and Mayflower Wind, whose ownership... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. 
Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.